0: All right, have a seat. <clears throat> hey, welcome to the Commons. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here. You guys good this morning? Yeah. Hey, if you got a Bible, open to Mark chapter nine. We're picking up in our series in in, uh, in Mark's gospel. Mark nine. As you turn there. Uh, last week, Easter Sunday it was a great day, right? It's fun a uh, fun Sunday to be together. i I'm told I need to give an official uh, apology. On behalf of the Commons Church, any families with young children, for uh, the stick-on tattoos that we gave out that are permanently or apparently got kind of permanent, uh, we did these after uh, church on Sunday with the kids, and there's not much sign of it coming off, actually, in me or the kids. But I've had fun with it this week. Uh, I, uh, I had to take one of our cars to the shop to uh, to get worked on, and. Uh, there's a guy in our church named Devin who does great work on cars and I took it to him and uh, I dropped into his bay at the shop that he works at and, uh, and I came in his boss uh, who I hadn't met yet was in his bay and uh, I walk up and Devin was like excited to introduce me to his boss and so he goes hey you, know, you gotta meet my boss and I was like cool so I reach out to shake his hand his boss has this sweet sleeve going up his arm so I shake his hand and I pull his arm for- forward and I was like man, that's a sweet sleeve of tattoos you got there. And I kind of did this right here. And he looks and he was like, oh yeah, that's that's cool. And Devin's over in the corner going, oh my gosh. I think Devin was going to say, I think Devin was going to tell this guy that I'm I'm his pastor, uh, but he didn't after that. So Mark nine, you should be there. Uh, If not, it'll be up on the screen. Also, you guys have probably seen uh, the tractors are back. The trucks are back working on the parking lot. Now it's getting warmer, so in the next couple months, uh, that's going to be wrapping up. A lot of work to do in the next couple months, but uh, I just want to say to you guys, thank you so much for helping own the initiative, the Make Room initiative, make more room in our parking lot. And here in our auditorium, we'll be busting out that back wall in the next few weeks. Uh, I think as of today, you know what, We, we set this goal back in October as a church. Those of you who call this church your home for us together to give a million dollars above and beyond our normal giving over the next 12 months, and I think as of today, we're a little bit over 400000 and so thank you guys for being so generous with that, and let's keep on going. All right, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, if you got it, let me hear you say, I got it. Again, it'll be on the screens, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one on your way out at our next steps table. Here we go, verse 30. (coughs) It says, they went on from there. And passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, "The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you discussing on the way?" But they kept silent, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. That's going to be fun to talk about. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And then verse 42 says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. I don't know why I'm laughing at this. And he were thrown into the sea. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I want to pray for us. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak through your word and speak directly into our hearts. Your word is like a two-edged sword that penetrates to the deepest part of our hearts. And I just pray that this morning that would happen to every single one of us, regardless of where we are in knowing you, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, because it was Easter, we stepped out of our study through Mark. This is week 23 of our study, I counted this morning. And uh, by the end of this, we're gonna have 40 weeks studying through Mark's gospel. And so let me just kind of like catch us up to speed in the, in the recent events through our study in Mark. Two sermons ago, week 21, uh, we were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So you had uh, Jesus with Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, takes takes him up on this mountain. And before their eyes, he's transfigured, which in short means that uh, his glory was revealed. And which, by the way, the great miracle here is not the fact that Jesus revealed his glory in this moment. The great miracle here is the fact that all of this time, Jesus had been concealing his glory. And so he reveals his glory. Moses and Elijah show up. And then the next week we saw Uh, Peter, James, and John with Jesus walk down the mountain, off the mountain into the valley where they run into the disciples and this desperate dad whose son had a demon. And man, massive gospel picture that we saw in there. If you missed the sermon from two weeks ago, uh, you need to go back and listen to it because I think it's it's a critical sermon for us. But now we are passing through Galilee on the way to Capernaum, which remember going all the way back to the beginning of Mark when Jesus is uh, choosing his disciples. He does so around Capernaum. This is where Peter and Andrew and some of the others live, so I don't know if they're going back home to, you know, they're exhausted, get a home cooked meal, but they're headed back to Capernaum, and you see this in verse 30. It says, they went on from there, passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. Now, this popped out to me this week. I don't know why uh, this seemed to pop out, but, but it did. I, you know, Jesus so often, he wants to do stuff outside of the eye of the public. And that got me thinking about this, you know, I don't know if this is gonna connect with you. If, if not, just we'll move on. But social media wasn't a thing back then. And I, and I wonder if it was a thing back then, what Jesus like would think, or I mean today, if Jesus was like in this room, which, you know, he is, but in a different way, I, I wonder what he would think about us in the need that I think so many of us feel to constantly be posting on social media so that everybody can always know what we're doing. You know, whether that's your Instagram story or TikTok or Twitter or whatever you use. It's interesting, there's this term today called an influencer. I'm talking to the young crowd in here now, older crowd, just, you know, wait, your part of the sermon's coming. Uh, you know, there's this term called influencer. You guys know what I'm talking about. Somebody on social media who has thousands, oftentimes millions of followers, and there's people who uh, companies come to with their brand to try to influence people because they got a lot of followers, a lot of people watching them. So they put clothes on them, put drinks in their hand that will, you know, they'll promote. Right? They're called influencers because they have all of these followers and they're always posting on their social media so everybody always knows what's going on in their life. And it, I'm just looking at Jesus's life here and I'm thinking, man, Jesus—he was really only focused on 12 guys, and even within that, three. And yet it seems like he had a pretty stinking good strategy for influencing the world better than maybe the strategy that we think should be the strategy today. Now take from that what you want, but that struck me as I'm reading this week. Not the main point of the sermon, but it's there. All right, so anyways, he says, verse 31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I, I think it's important for us to stop here and make this observation. It says the Son of Man, talking about himself, was gonna be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. Which lends to the question, who delivered Jesus into the hands of men to be killed? Who was it? What'd you say? Judas. Now I thought you were gonna say that. And don't be texting the second service, okay? But here's the reality. I, I think we gotta ask the question, is that really who's responsible for delivering Jesus over to the hands of men to be killed? Now here's, the, here's, here's what I'm getting at. When Jesus says he will be delivered over to be killed, there's actually a question about who he's actually talking about here because the word delivered there, it is the same word used to talk about Judas betraying Jesus, but it's also the same word used to talk about the father delivering over his son to be killed. Now, regardless of which Jesus actually means here, here is what is at the heart of the gospel. God is the one who gave up his son to be sacrificed for us. You know, Romans 5 we we bring that in all the time. But God shows us his love, demonstrates his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows his love for us by doing this. Romans 3, for all sin, falling short of the glory of God. But then verse 24 says, and are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then come on, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that what? That he gave, he's the one who gave his only son so that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. It was God's intentional decision to give up his son for you and for me. God did it and that's the gospel you can't miss that seems small but it's huge so again verse 31 he says the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise so Jesus once again predicts his death he's done this already do you remember that he did it back in chapter 8 he does it here in chapter 9 and by the way spoiler he's going to do it again in chapter 10 why does he keep doing this And not only does he keep talking about his death, but he keeps talking about how his disciples, his followers, if they're going to follow him, they're going to have to take up their own cross in order to effectively follow him. Remember Mark 8.34? (coughs) Mark 8.34, he says, if anyone's going to come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why does Jesus keep talking about the cross? Why does Jesus keep (coughs) bringing the cross into view? Listen, this is critical. This is huge. In fact, this is what this whole sermon kind of revolves or is formed around. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus, he keeps pulling the cross into the disciples' view because there's nothing more critical, there's nothing more foundational, there's nothing more necessary for knowing and following Jesus than what he did on the cross. Like, yes, last week we celebrate Good Friday and we celebrated Easter, but that's not something that we just celebrate once a year. Every time we gather in here, we are directing our eyes to the cross. We're celebrating what Jesus did on the cross, and that's because Jesus can't be known without the cross in view. But not only that, Jesus can't be followed without the cross in view. And it's the second part of that statement that I really want to hone in on on this week. Jesus can't be followed without the cross in view. To follow Jesus, it's more than just a verbal declaration. It is a total shift in your life. It's a total shift in your life. In 1543, this guy named Nicholas Copernicus published a treatise that, that said the sun is the center of the universe. He said... This universe is heliocentric. Now we hear that and we think, what's the big deal? The big deal is prior to this, everybody thought that the universe was geocentric. Prior to this, everybody thought that the whole universe revolved around the earth. And this was more than just a scientific belief. This was like spiritual. And you can see how this could become spiritual. The whole universe revolves around us. It wasn't just science for them, it was a worldview, a geocentric worldview. But Copernicus shows up and he says, actually, it's not geocentric, it's heliocentric. Now, who was right? (laughs) Who was right, Copernicus? That's a trick question. No, neither of them were right. The universe does not revolve around the sun, okay? You clearly missed your science class. Now, he was more right, our solar system revolves around the sun. But here's my point. When he shows up and he says, hey, it's heliocentric, not geocentric, it threw the world into chaos. It threw that region, at least, into chaos. It's called the Copernican Revolution. It threw science into chaos because suddenly everybody's like, well, hold on, what is in the middle then? What's in the middle? What does it all revolve around then? And it began to shift everything. It shifted their worldview. It shifted their scientific belief from geocentric to heliocentric. No longer were we in the middle. And that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to know God. There's a total shift in your life. It's a complete change in your worldview. There's a new thing in the middle. Your life becomes reoriented around what Jesus has done on the cross, which let's just start there. Has that happened in your life? And listen, for so many of us, what we wanna do is we try to pull the cross into orbit around us. It's one of the many things going on in our life that we pull in to kind of like, you know, try to be part of our life on our terms. That's not knowing the Lord. Pulling the cross into orbit around you, that's not following Jesus. To follow Jesus is to come to the realization that the universe doesn't revolve around me or you. That's an egocentric view of the world. We're all born with an egocentric view of the world. To follow Jesus is to realize that everything revolves around Jesus and what he did on the cross, a Christocentric view of the world. This shift from egocentric to Christocentric has to happen in the life of every believer. This is called the cross-centered life. Now why am I talking about the cross-centered life? It's because three things happen next in what we're reading this morning that are so foundational to what the cross-centered life looks like. In other words, if the cross is in the middle, then there's some things in our life that will just naturally follow. There's some things in our life that will naturally flow out of the fact that the cross has been put in the middle of our life. So what does the cross-centered life look like? The cross-centered life is characterized by three things. First, it's characterized by the pursuit of true greatness. Second, it's characterized by a zeal for a new kingdom, and third, it's characterized by an aggressive fight against sin. So I wanna look at each. Number one, the pursuit of true greatness. Look at verse 33. <coughs> it says, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they're arguing over who the greatest was. Now, this isn't like, I mean, we love this argument. Who's the GOAT? Greatest of all time. All right. Uh, okay, we already got from the front row Michael Jordan. Let's just go there. Let's just go there. Uh, if you are team MJ, let's stick your hand up in the air. Greatest of all time. Okay, uh, not enough hands. If you're team LeBron, stick your hand up in the air. Okay, less hands. That's good. Is is there anybody, let's throw a curveball. Is there anybody Team Kobe in the room? Team Kobe? Okay, all right, one. You're on an island right here. Well, if you said LeBron, you are the worst of the worst centers in this room. Um, And if you say it because he has a scoring record, you don't know the NBA. They just stop playing defense and really don't even play basketball anymore, so... You can't base it off of that. Okay, they were not arguing over the goat of the NBA. Now, if they were, they all would have said MJ and Jesus would have agreed. But they're arguing over who was the greatest among them. Who was the goat among them? And this is a funny argument to me. I mean, think about this. Think about like what had happened. Think about what's gonna happen. All right, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a forward look here. In chapter 10, uh, James and John, their brothers, sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of thunder, Like, I love that nickname. I don't know why they got it. Maybe because they were loud. Maybe because they were bold. I don't know. But they are going to go to Jesus in chapter 10 and say, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right hand. Let one of us sit at your left hand. They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. Like, I would imagine they're the ones who probably, like, instigated uh, this conversation. Um, I'm good. I'm good, Rick. Thank you. You're generous. I'm good. I got water up here. I got coffee up here, actually, even better. Um, I assume that's what you were doing. Thank you. I'm sorry. My voice is trash uh anyways i don't remember where i was at oh so they're having this argument over who is the greatest right and so james and john i'm sure the ones who instigated it in fact uh depending on which gospel account you look at in matthew 20 it shows uh james john's mom going to jesus saying hey would you let one of my sons sit at your right hand one of my sons sit at your left hand like come on mom back out of the picture helicopter come on you know you're like you're embarrassing us (laughs) but also think about some other things that happen I mean, they had just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you know, Peter, James, and John, part of this conversation are saying, well, we're, it's got to be one of us because we're the ones who have seen like Jesus uh, transfigured. We've seen his glory. We met Elijah. We met Moses. Uh, And also they're saying, we came down the mountain. Y'all trying to cast out this demon and y'all all all failed. Y'all are clearly not the greatest, but then, you know, they're Pushing back against Peter and saying, Well, yeah, but just like last chapter, Jesus looked at you and said, Get behind me, Satan. So I think you're out of the conversation. Now, I'm sure this was a, a very uh, uh, exciting conversation to listen in on. And so Jesus says, Hey, what were y'all talking about on the, on the way? And it's funny to me because they kept silent. And they kept silent partly because they're like, Oh, shoot, he heard us talking. They were embarrassed. Now, let me point this out. You go back to verse 32, right before this. After Jesus predicts his death for the second time, it says, but they did not understand. Remember, Jesus keeps talking about the cross. He's trying to pull it into view. He's trying to pull it into the middle of their lives. He's trying to cause this shift in their hearts from egocentric to Christocentric. And it says in verse 32, they still didn't understand. This has everything to do with what's happening here. What kind of worldview were the 12 disciples still living with? An egocentric one. The cross wasn't in the middle yet. I mean, when the, when the cross is in the middle, these conversations, they don't happen. But this conversation was happening, so let's, let's talk about it. So Jesus says in response, <coughs> verse 35, he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. If anyone wants to be first, he needs to be last. That is called a paradox, do you know what that word paradox means? Uh, I got the definition. It says this, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. I love this word paradox. In fact, if I was to plant another church, I think we got the best church name ever. It's super cool. Uh, but if I was to plant another church, I, I would call it paradox. I got a buddy in Fort Worth, Texas. He goes to a church named Paradox Church. I think that's such a dope name for a church. I don't know why I said dope. I never say dope. Uh, it's all these college students down here. I would call it Paradox Church. It's, 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 I think, the coolest name. And the reason is because the gospel exactly is, is exactly that. The gospel is a paradox, it seems absurd. And so much of what it looks like to follow Jesus and live in his kingdom is a paradox. And honestly, I think this is one of the biggest hang-ups for a lot of people coming to faith in Jesus. It's not so much they have trouble believing the resurrection of Jesus, it's the paradox that God conquered death through death. It's the paradox that we're saved by faith or by grace, not by works. It's the paradox that the one to whom we are so greatly indebted to paid our debt for us. It doesn't make sense. The gospel is so paradoxical, and so is so much of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So he says, if anyone among you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. John Piper, he's a pastor. He points out the fact that Jesus, he doesn't condemn, condemn the desire to be great. He actually transforms the pathway to it. And he points this out. He says, sin has distorted what greatness looks like in our culture in two ways. One more than actually wanting to be great, we wanna be known as great. And two, we wanna be great in comparison to others. Like I wanna be first as long as everybody else is like second, third, fourth. I don't care what number you are as long as I'm first. So how does Jesus say we become great? Well, again, he says, <coughs> if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That word servant, it's the Greek word diakonos. It's, an, it's, a, it's a strong word, and it means like washer of feet. The person with the dirty job. Changer of diapers. Uh, parents in the room, you're like, with little kids, you're like, well, shoot, I'm great then because I just changed like three on the, in the morning on the way here, right? Changer of diapers. Standing at the back of the line. It means others go first. In other words, listen, the way up is down. Christianity... It is an upside-down way of life. It, it flips everything we know upside-down. Remember Mark 8.35? I mean, we're Mark 9.35, so literally. One chapter four, Mark 8.35. Jesus, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. It's a paradox. It's upside-down. Remember Matthew 5? Jesus he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they'll inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they'll see the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be, comfort- for they'll be comforted. That's such a paradox. It's upside down. Matthew 23, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs> Matthew 11, I mean, my favorite, many of your favorite. He says, if you want to rest, then take my yoke upon you. Yoke was a a tool used for working. And it's like, if you're wearing a yoke, that actually means you're working. Doesn't make sense. If you want to rest, put on this symbol of work. Paradox. You know, Jesus' whole life was a paradox. He was the king of kings. Yet he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a feeding trough for animals inside of a barn. He was the king of kings. Yet he wasn't born to this this powerful, well-known family. He was born to a no-name family in a no-name town. Jesus, he was the king of kings, yet he didn't come riding into town on this big, white stallion. He came riding into town on a tiny little donkey. He was the king of kings, yet he didn't come fighting his battles, flexing his muscles, swinging his sword. No, he came and he was killed on a cross. Like This is what true greatness looks like according to Jesus. And you keep going, verse 36. But Jesus, uh, sorry, verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What is he doing here? Like, we gotta talk about this briefly at least because I'm sure some really bad theologies come out of this. Like, is he, he's not promoting, uh, you know, man-made religion. He's not promoting works-based religion here. Now, uh, you know, he's not like saying, all right, if you go serve down in the commons, kids, you got a guaranteed spot in heaven. Uh, Missy Potter, our kids director, would love it if it said that, but that's not what he's saying. Some of you like praise God because uh, I'm not gonna go anywhere close to that, you know, although you should. Anyways, uh, he's not saying that. No, what he's saying is, or he's saying this because you get nothing in return for serving a child. You know, Those of you who are parents, like that's the part of the sermon you're like, oh, amen. You know, so many times I want to say to my kids, if you only knew how good you have it. Kids aren't going to sing your praises. They're not going to post on social media how you serve them well or how you help them. They can't put in a good word for you to help you get a promotion. They can't pay you back. They pretty much take it for granted that you'll take care of them. It sounds very similar to what Jesus says in Luke 14. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor. Invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the blind. And you'll be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the, res- at the resurrection of the just. Again, Piper, he says, children prove more clearly than any other kind of people whether you are truly great or not. Whether you live to serve or live to be praised. The point that Jesus is making here is this. Do you want the praise of men? Do you want the praise of other people? Or do you just, like, do you just want intimacy with Jesus? Again, this is what true greatness look like, looks like. And again, I'd be missing it big if I, if, I, if I didn't talk about comparison. Because that's what's happening here. The disciples, they're essentially like comparing each other on this walk to Capernaum. And last week, we did this church-wide Easter survey, and one of the questions we asked was, what's the greatest source of stress or anxiety for you? Number two, you guys said comparison. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but comparison is the thief of joy. But even more so, comparison is symptomatic of a heart that's not oriented around the cross. Comparison is rooted in pride. It's rooted in Ego, an egocentric view of the world. What place do I hold in the universe? It's a fight to be in the middle. Which leads to the question, are you living in an egocentric world or are you living in a Christocentric world? What does the cross-centered life look like? It looks like the pursuit of true greatness. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. But let's keep going. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So what does is, what is the cross-centered life look like? Number two, it is zeal for a new kingdom. Zeal for a new kingdom. Now, think of the irony of what's happening here. I mean, just before this, the disciples failed at casting a demon out. And now John, he sees this other dude who's not part of their group, effectively, successfully cast a demon out on somebody else, and he's like upset about it. Honestly, again, this is just an emergence of the comparison problem they had. And again, it's exposing something, at least about John, that his ego was still fighting to be in the middle. Now, as a pastor, let me just open up here. And I realize that what I'm about to say is mostly applicable to me and people who have a, a job or position like I have, but I'm hopeful that in sharing this, it will encourage you in some way. It's easy for me. To look at other pastors who are like super gifted at, you know, XYZ, teaching, leadership, shepherding, I mean, so many different things, and to be envious. And my flesh wants to find something wrong with their ministry so that I can make myself feel better. I'll just be straight up with you. I think pastors struggle with comparison, possibly more than anybody else. And oftentimes, Our go-to response is to try to undermine the other person's ministry by talking bad about it. Somebody's Bible just went off, it's all good. God wants us to hear his word, you know? It's like, shut up, Austin, you're telling this story. I wanna, I wanna speak. Hopefully that's not really what's happening. I think this is helpful. Oftentimes, our go-to when we struggle with comparison is to undermine the other person's ministry by talking bad about it. Listen, we, you know, we want our pastors, we want our church to be the best. We want our church to grow. We want to be loved. Like, I constantly have to be asking myself, whose kingdom am I living for? And I want to say this, though I constantly deal with this in my flesh, you need to know my heart. You also need to know the heart of the leadership of our church. It's not about the commons. It is about the kingdom. And we've been saying this from day one. Really, we've been saying it since before day one. In March 2019, we held our first um, preview salt company service out on campus. And we said this there. We don't want to see people leave other churches to come to the commons. Like, we don't want to be known as, oh, that's the coolest church or that's the best church and lure people away from other churches. That's not kingdom building. That's kingdom shifting and moving around. Like, that's not that exciting to us. Now, there's some caveats there of, like, why people like leaving another church is is good or is okay, but like that's not our desire. People assume that because I'm a church planter, uh, if you have a pulse and a paycheck, we'll take you. Uh, and honestly, in a church that reaches a lot of college students, if you have a paycheck, we're really excited about it, you know, and I think if God brought you here and you have a paycheck, partially the reason he brought you here is to help pay for the ministry that we do in the city. So, you know, hint, hint, there you go, QR code. Anyways, uh, I want you to know, I say that kind of in jest, but also serious, uh, I I wanna say this, look, just because you have a pulse on a paycheck, that's not, that doesn't necessarily mean we're excited. We wanna see people who are far from Jesus come to faith in Christ. That's who we wanna see coming to the church. We wanna see people who are not in the church come to the church. It's not about the commons, it's about the kingdom. Whose kingdom are we living for? Whose kingdom are you living for? The reality is the cross-centered life or cross-centered living causes a major shift in our hearts. An egocentric worldview Me in the middle means we're living for ourselves. We're building our kingdom. But a Christocentric worldview, the cross in the middle, Christ in the middle, means we're living for a new kingdom. And this shapes everything about how we live, including cheering on the success of others who are also part of this new kingdom. So what does the cross-centered life look like? It looks like pursuing true greatness and it looks like zeal for a new kingdom. But let's keep going, verse 42. (coughs) Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm doesn't die like they're dying on the sidewalk out here. I don't know if you knows this morning. And the fire's not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, To be fully honest, there's a lot to unpack here and and many pastors will take these nine verses and preach just a whole sermon on these nine verses. So I'm not not gonna cover this section to the extent you likely want me to. Um, One of the biggest things that we see here and that I'm not gonna dive hard into is that Jesus talks about hell. Hell is real. In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else and Jesus talked about hell more than heaven. But that said, this is what I want us to see from these nine verses today. What does the cross-centered life look like? Number three, it's this. An aggressive fight against sin. An aggressive fight against sin. So first, let's quickly deal with verse 42. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is like mafia-sounding stuff here. Like you read this and you're like, okay, what? I mean, my mind immediately goes towards the news about that lake in Las Vegas that the water's getting really low and you see in this, they keep discovering dead bodies. I shouldn't laugh about that. They keep discovering dead bodies in this lake. It's like, dang, the mafia was active there. Maybe they were taking this literally, I don't know. Jesus says some vivid and honestly like violent stuff here. What do we do with that? Well, you listen to what he says. He's talking about, he's talking about uh, people causing these quote unquote little ones who believe in him to sin. So, he's just talked about children, like actual children. Here he shifts, though, and when he says little ones, he's talking about his followers, specifically baby believers, like newborn Christians. And he's saying, anybody who causes these newborn Christians to sin, man, that's, that, that doesn't make me, that doesn't sit well with me. Like I think about my own kids you jack with my kids, I jack with you. Jesus is saying the same thing here you jack with my little kids, I'm going to jack with you. And by the way, I mean, if you're a believer, especially if you're a new believer, oh, you should be encouraged by this. Jesus feels strongly for you. Like in your weak faith, in your baby faith, like in the little knowledge you have about God and his word, this is how he feels about you. He's not standing back going, gosh, you're so ignorant of what my word says. No, he's like, man, if anybody jacks with you, I'm gonna jack with them. I got your back. I'm gonna tie a millstone around their neck, throw them in the Las Vegas River, like the mafia. That's what I do. That's what he's saying. This is how he cares about you. And I love this. You should be so encouraged by that. But here's the other thing. Listen to what he says. Anybody who causes one of these little ones to sin, this is how I feel about it. I don't know how that sits with you. But anybody who has any level of leadership or authority in the church, and that doesn't mean you gotta be on staff, connection group leader, serve team leader, D group leader, These are some weighty words for us to carry. I feel the weight of these words. It makes me think of James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Makes me think of Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I know that one day I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to have to give an account to how I've shepherded. And it's not just me. It's the same The same is true of those who have leadership and authority in the church. Jesus cares deeply about us, but let's keep going. So verse 43, he says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life crippled than with two hands to go to hell. It's an unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter a life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, a few years back, I was in Honduras. And I don't know if you've ever been to Honduras, seen pictures of Honduras. There's mountains, but not like rocky, not like the Rocky Mountains, but like smaller mountains. They're really close together, kind of like really big hills. And we were camping out on the side of this mountain in this little village. And at the bottom of the mountain, there's a bunch of trees. I mean, it's just, it's like tropical. And there's this one tree in particular, we noticed this massive beehive. Okay. And it's really far away, but because the angle down the mountain, we could actually throw rocks from where we were uh, the distance to get to that beehive. And so, you know, being a bunch of dudes on this trip, we're like, well, hey, competition, let's go. Let's compare. Who's the greatest? Uh, And so we start grabbing these rocks and we start throwing them trying to hit this beehive. And, uh, you know, we're missing, you know, there's a couple of Honduran guys that hop in with us and, and we're throwing. A couple of us start hitting the beehive, you know, and so we're starting to talk some trash. And this one Honduran dude gets super ticked because he wasn't getting anywhere close to hitting this beehive. And he got so mad, uh, he all of a sudden says something, don't know what he said, but he storms off mad. He goes up the rest of the mountain and just disappears. Like five minutes later, we're still throwing, laughing, hitting this beehive. And uh, he comes back and he's got this face of determination and anger, and a machete in his hand, and he just goes walking straight down this mountain, and he keeps going and going and going, disappears into the bush, and uh, like ten minutes later, because it wasn't that close, and you know it's a hike down there, all of a sudden you start to hear this whack, whack, and you look in the tree every time you hear the whack, the tree with the beehive goes. <sharp inhale> that dude's down there with his machete trying to chop down this tree. And we're like, no way he's going to chop down this tree. Also, the bees are going to go everywhere. He's going to get stung. We're far enough away. We didn't care. But bam, whack, whack. Like 30 minutes later, whack, whack. An hour later, whack. And the tree just falls and boom. Bees go everywhere. He's getting stung by bees and stuff, but he just without, you know, cringing by the stings, he walks up the mountain with his machete, pulling bees off of him. What well, doesn't say anything to us. Just walks right back up the hill and he's like, that's the rest of that, you know? Determined to destroy this beehive. And I'm like, man, that was like one of the most bro manly things ever to do. I love it, right? But I think of that guy when I read this. The determination that he had to destroy that beehive. Danny Aiken, he says this. He says, a saving faith is a fighting faith. And earlier I said this, to follow Jesus, it's more than just a verbal declaration. It's a total shift in your life. So has this shift happened? Has this shift from egocentric (coughs) to Christocentric happened in your life? If the cross is in the middle, then there are some things in our life that will naturally flow out of that and one of those things is the way we view and fight sin. Now, We need to unpack that a little bit. (coughs) So first, he's talking about cutting stuff off. He's not talking about mutilation here. He's talking about mortification. So Jesus, he's being very hyperbolic in what he's saying here. He doesn't mean we should literally cut off our hand, cut off our foot, cut out our eye. Through hyperbole, he's trying to make the point that we need to do whatever it takes to fight sin in our life. So he talks about our hands. Our hands represent what we do. He talks about our feet, our feet represent where we go. He talks about our eyes, our eyes represent what we see. The point that he's getting at is if what we're doing, if where we're going, if what we're seeing is causing us to sin, we should cut it out. So if watching that show, if listening to that podcast, if reading that book, if going to that frat house, if going to that bar, if staying up after your spouse goes to sleep, If using that app on your phone, if staying late at work, if going on more business trips than you need to, if wearing those clothes, if hanging with those people, if going to that city causes you to sin, cut it out. Mortification. It's the action of subduing one's bodily desires. Now, why is it such a big deal to fight sin if we've already been saved from it? We don't fight sin so that we can be saved. We fight sin because we have been saved. Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Honestly, transliterate that today, heck no. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And I'll tell you, you know, Jesus talks a lot about life compared to hell here, the kingdom of God compared to hell. I think one of the greatest evidences of salvation in a person is a bigger, clearer view of hell. A bigger, clearer view of the consequences of sin. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, he said this, the most wicked, impenitent sinner in this world constantly assures himself that he'll escape the judgment of God. And God's patience by which the judgment does not fall on us already instead of leading us to repentance leads us to a false sense of security uh, to being at ease in Zion and say, well, God hasn't punished me yet. Obviously, all this talk about everlasting punishment, is just a scare theology that has no correspondence to reality. Listen, the clearer the view we have of hell, the clearer the view we have of our sin. And the result is the more we cling to the cross or the more we'll reorient our lives around the cross. This is what the cross-centered life looks like, the pursuit of true greatness, zeal for a new kingdom, and a, an aggressive fight against sin. To follow Jesus is more than just a verbal declaration. It is a total shift in your life. Similar to the Copernican Revolution. It took place 480 years ago. There needs to be a shift in the heart of every believer. You know, then it was geocentric to heliocentric. Today, egocentric to Christocentric. Has that shift taken place in your life? Is your life centered on the cross? If the cross is in the middle there are some things in your life that will naturally follow. The pursuit of true greatness, zeal for a new kingdom, an aggressive fight against sin. Now, one last thing I wanna point out is this. Notice that our focus is not on a crucifix, it's on an empty cross. The crucifix carries a weight to it of guilt and shame. Look at what you have done whereas the empty cross carries a different weight to it. It says, look at what he has done. And you go back to Mark nine thirty one. it says, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus, he has the cross in view, but he also has the resurrection in view. And just like we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is powerless and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So the question on the table for you this morning, this week, is what's in the middle? What kind of worldview do you have? Is it egocentric or is it Christocentric? I pray that we would be people with a Christocentric worldview that the cross would be in the middle. Let me pray for us.